Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Rosemary Salomon about her book titled The Rise of English, Global Politics and the Power of Language, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. In the book, Dr. Salomon offers a commanding view of the unprecedented spread of English as language and the far-reaching effects that it has on global and local politics, economics, media, education, business, and a whole bunch of things um, all over the world in countries that speak just English, countries that speak many other languages in addition to English, um, and helps us understand uh, kind of what the impacts are of having such a dominant language in today's world. It's a really fascinating book that covers a lot of different things. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Rosemary Salomon to the podcast. Could we start off, please, uh, Dr. Salomon, with you introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write the book? Uh, certainly. It's, it's been a rather, uh, I guess, a long and circuitous journey to this book. I'm a law professor who was initially trained as a linguist. Uh, and while working toward my PhD, I also taught English to international students. Uh, and develop bilingual programs for Italian, Spanish, and Haitian Creole-speaking immigrant students uh, in primary and secondary schools in New York City. Uh, since entering academia, my research has focused on educational equality uh, and more recently on comparative equality. Uh, and I teach courses in constitutional law and government regulation, uh, children and the law, Uh, and uh, a course on comparative equality and anti-discrimination law. For a number of years, I've been writing on language rights, taking me back to my roots in linguistics. Uh, My book, A True American, which was published in 2010, looked at language and identity in the education of immigrant children in the United States. But the book closed with a chapter on Europe, and that is where my current book, The Rise of English, begins. What what initially brought me to this particular book uh, was back in 2013, uh, where there were two legal disputes in Europe over university programs taught in English. Uh, In France, it was a legislative proposal that would allow university courses to be taught in a language other than French, and obviously it was going to be English. At that point, prominent professors in France were calling the project an assault on the French language. In Italy, it was a plan to offer all graduate courses in English within two years at Milan's Polytechnic Institute. There, 100 professors challenged the plan in court. The French legislation was ultimately adopted. Uh, In the case of Italy, that litigation floated through the various levels of the Italian court system, uh, went up to the constitutional court in Italy, uh, and there the court held that students have the right to learn and professors have the right to teach in their native language. In deconstructing those controversies, 
I saw that despite all the benefits of a common global language, there also were significant burdens. Uh, in those cases, and it came out in all the, the controversy and the public dispute and, and the, the um, news media coverage, professors and students who were not fluent in English were being left behind. English also posed a potential threat to national languages and national identity. So my initial plan was to write a book on the value of language in the global economy, examining winners, losers, and resistors on each side of the Atlantic. But the deeper I dug into the research, the connection to the post-colonial world just began to take shape before my eyes. From there, I started thinking more broadly about English as a global lingua franca. I saw the issue was far more nuanced as I, as I got into the research on uh, English as a lingua franca and global language in, in more generally. I saw that the issues were far more nuanced than some of the commentary claimed. Was English bringing the world together or was it dividing the world between those who have English and, and those who don't? So I decided to explore those nuanced effects in countries with distinct histories. Uh, and, and, and so it ultimately, the book took me seven years to complete, seven years to write. Uh, and it took me through seven countries and seven languages. And so I looked at India and the caste system uh, and Hindi nationalism. I looked at South Africa uh, and the whole backdrop of apartheid and the role that Afrikaans continues to play in the politics of South Africa. I looked at Morocco, uh, where French colonialism and Arabic and the Arabization of the education system came into play. And I looked at Rwanda and the 1994 genocide uh, and the French uh, arguable involvement or complicity in that genocide. Finally, I, I, it was inevitable that I had to consider the downside of English monolingualism and how the monolingual mindset is leaving English speakers behind. As you said, the book covers a massive amount of ground. Um, and I'm in a lot of ways glad as a reader that it kind of expanded beyond your initial thinking. Uh, I think that brings out uh, the richness of the conversation and debates and ideas that you've just given us a brief journey through. So thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I'd love to pick up on the idea of the lingua franca, um, because of course, in some conversations, we do hear the idea of kind of English as the new Latin. To what extent can we compare Latin and English as being dominant lingua franca of their eras? It is inevitable to compare English with Latin, and you hear that comparison being made quite frequently. Uh, frequently. But, well, I'll, I'll give you the, first the commonalities and then the stark distinctions. Uh, like English today, Latin did hold a monopoly over language, especially in the sciences, and it held that monopoly long after the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century. Yet the force of English is far stronger and consequential than Latin for a number of reasons. Latin did not threaten national identities that were tied to a national language because neither of them, you know, national identities or national language even existed at that time. Uh, Latin did not have a modern technology uh, and especially the internet or high-speed air travel that could solidify uh, its status as a common way to communicate. 
And so Latin just could not fuel a global economy as English has done. Nor did Latin have a system of compulsory schooling, either promoting or resisting it as we have today. So as much as we say that English is the new Latin in terms of it being a lingua franca, it is far more powerful than Latin ever was. That's really useful to know because that comparison does come up um, so often. So thank you for kind of illuminating the truth uh, behind the myth. I'd love to next go to where your book primarily starts, which, as you said, is in Europe. Um, Why do you argue that the gap between, quote, rhetoric and reality of multilingualism in Europe, end quote, is so large? On the one hand, the European Union, through numerous directives and resolutions, has encouraged its member states to teach all children their mother tongue plus two additional languages. So there's what's called this mother tongue plus two agenda or program. Uh, And the idea behind it is to promote European integration among the member states uh, and to promote job mobility among Europeans. On the other hand, both the EU institutions and the countries that belong to the EU have felt this pressure to prioritize English for its value in the global economy. So we see the European Council, the European Commission, the European Parliament, all increasingly using English as an informal working language, even though the EU recognizes 24 languages among its members. The EU also has no authority over education policy, So it has to rely on the will of state officials and education officials in the member states to to take some action with regard to promoting multiple languages. Uh, Throughout Europe, English is typically the first foreign language that children learn in school and the one that they learn for the most number of years. For many students, uh, multilingualism or what the Europeans would call plurilingualism has come to mean native language plus English. So it's come to mean two languages, uh, not multiple languages, even though many students do learn more than two languages. But that said, uh, though many students do study a foreign language and and several foreign languages, and, and that most notably is English, in many cases, it may only be for a few hours a week There's also a a severe shortage of teachers who are proficient in foreign languages and especially in English. And so there is this serious gap between the rhetoric and the reality of multilingualism in Europe. And that gap is related in large part to to English. Hmm. How then have European countries tried to moderate between the benefits and burdens Um, as English, particularly when it comes to using it as a medium of instruction? This has been really difficult for European countries to walk that tightrope. Universities have tried to reap the benefits of English by offering courses and programs entirely in English. Uh, Some countries like the Netherlands and Germany and the Nordic Nordic countries like uh, Sweden and Norway and Denmark uh, they've moved more. They moved earlier and more quickly in that direction as compared to others, say like Italy and Spain. But even there, these programs have generated ongoing debate over the quality of teaching and learning, and the potential threat to the national language. So even 
while my study began with these controversies in Italy and France, the third country I did look at, and there's a separate chapter uh, in the book, is the Netherlands, because I felt that was a country that had a very different history of teaching English or English-taught programs, and I wanted to see what, um, how that has worked out, how it's played out uh, over the years. Universities adopt what we call EMI, English Medium Instruction, for a variety of reasons. Obviously, these programs prepare their own domestic students for jobs in the global economy. Um, but they also attract foreign students because English is by far the most widely studied language globally. So these programs do attract more foreign students, uh, and that to some extent raises additional revenue, particularly if they're students from outside the EU where they could charge higher tuition rates. Uh, EMI also raises international rankings uh, and the university's global reputation. And so there's a lot of benefits there for universities to move in this direction. But the, the benefits also come with, as I've mentioned, burdens on faculty and students who don't have the necessary skills to function in what we call academic English. And so in the book, I, I discuss at length the pressure on faculty to publish or in English or perish, especially in the hard sciences, which and that drives hiring and promotion decisions. Many professors also lose out on networking opportunities because they have weak English skills. Uh, for example, academic conferences more and more are held exclusively in English. It, it used to be, and I've seen this, this transformation or evolution over the years uh, where um, conferences in Europe, for example, might be held in several languages. There might be interpreters or you, where you could wear headsets. And now more and more, they're just being held uh, in English. Uh, and as for students, some students really struggle to understand whatever readings are assigned on a deep level and to articulate their thoughts in writing in, in English. Uh, there's also an equity problem. And that, that problem is all too often overlooked. These programs tend to favor students, both domestic and foreign, who attended well-resourced private and public schools where the quality of English teaching was high, or students who had the advantage of private tutoring in English. Uh, and you see this is much more common uh, in Europe, in, in Western Europe, for middle and upper class parents to hire private tutors for their children to learn English. It's, it's clear to see when you explain it so easily um, what kind of the two sides of that coin are. Um, and I think given how many of us uh, listening to this are obviously in and around academia, those pressures you talk about in terms of conferences, uh, par publisher, parish, et cetera, are very familiar. So it's helpful to have an additional uh, way to think about those things that we might encounter quite frequently. But I'd love to move away from Europe for a moment and expand the discussion, as you do in the book, uh, towards the post-colonial uh, areas of debate. And I was particularly interested in the section of the book that looks at uh, what languages are spoken in Africa, and particularly uh, sort of tensions between English education, French, and uh, Mandarin as well as a growing area in Africa. And I was particularly wondering about 
navigating those post-colonial tensions, and especially how French politicians, you mentioned in the book, uh, the current French President Macron, um, how have they tried to maintain the expansion of French language speakers in Africa, despite or while dealing with the heavy colonial and post-colonial tensions? That aspect of the book really intrigued me. Um, uh, There is much I learned from the book in in writing it, for sure. Uh, But there are some aspects that intrigued me more than others. Uh, France, above all, has mightily tried to preserve its national language uh, and the status that French once had as the language of culture and diplomacy. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron He's put great effort into resetting the colonial narrative in France's former colonies, uh, and especially in Africa, where English seems to be weakening France's grip. Uh, Macron, by, by promoting French under this banner of multilingualism, he's dismissed English and at the same time drawn a picture of French opening doors internationally to these countries and to their young people. Back in 2017, Uh, Macron made a a now famous speech to university students in Burkina Faso, uh, where he warned that, and I'm quoting him, uh, to reject the French language because English is more fashionable in Africa is to ignore the future. French will be the number one language in Africa, maybe even in the world, if we play our cards right in the coming decades. And so when you look at this, this rhetoric, Um, African leaders have been pragmatically more receptive to this kind of discourse. Uh, The continent's intellectual elite, however, has criticized those efforts uh, as a sign of neocolonialism. But but that said, France itself has gradually come to accept the role of English on the domestic front. Macron, in fact, he himself is quite fluent in English which he uses effectively on the international stage. And, and at times, he's been criticized uh, by, by his own people for, for doing so. A law adopted, and, and to tell you how France has shifted within its educational system toward this recognition of language, uh, the legislature in France adopted in 2020 a law that requires French students to pass an English exam financed by the state at the end of high school and the end of the bachelor's degree. So even though Macron in France is promoting the French language in Africa, where they really do, they do he does see uh, a demographic dividend there because they're the, the, uh, the population, the youth population of Africa is growing rapidly, just growing rapidly. Uh, and so France sees the opportunity for expanding the number of French speakers in the world by focusing on Africa. But that said, on the, on the uh, international side, within France itself, France is coming to understand that uh, English is dominating as a lingua franca globally. Quite a balance to strike then, or a tricky Um, situation to try and pick your way through for the French president, which is fascinating. So thank you for explaining that. Um, I'd love to stay in Africa for a moment and ask about one of the countries that you mentioned in the introduction of Rwanda, uh, which, as you said, has uh, some tensions as well with France and French as a language, um, as well as, of course, its native language, Kenya Rwandan. 
um, but also now English. So I'm wondering if you can help us understand why it makes sense in some ways for Rwanda to move quite heavily towards English, but similarly, perhaps to Europe, where this push towards English actually is also creating some issues within its education system. For Rwanda, um, it's made sense both politically and economically. And so the country's move toward English has much to do with the genocide of the 1990s, Uh, but it also has to do with the value of English in the global economy. Uh, And the fact that Rwanda, which was a former French-speaking Belgian colony, would benefit from trade with its English-speaking neighbors to the east. When uh, Rwandans who had been exiled, and it was the Tutsis who had been exiled in English-speaking Uganda, when they returned and took control of the capital Kigali in 1994 in the wake of the genocide, they brought English with them. This was a generation that had grown up speaking English in Uganda. They also brought a a very deep hostility toward France for its alleged backing of the Hutu forces responsible for murdering up to a thousand Tutsi. So it was no surprise when Rwanda in 2008 replaced French with English uh, in government and in commerce and in education. It was this uh, very dramatic switch over to English. Rwanda uh, also joined the English-speaking East African community, uh, and that gave the country fewer trade barriers and free labor mobility. So the switch to English benefited Rwanda economically. At that point, English-speaking investors were just racing into the country and pouring money into the country. But the quick turnover to English in the schools really was another matter, and it it stalled from the start. And it was clear why it was stalling. Uh, They just had a really uh, a scarce supply of English-language materials and English-speaking teachers. Of the country's 31,000 primary school teachers at that point, only 15% had been educated in English. In 2011, and it was largely under pressure from organizations like UNICEF, the government decided to pedal back a bit and to partially revert to teaching in Kinyarwanda, the national language, in grades one through three, and then English would be gradually introduced after that point. But it's been estimated that it will take two generations to develop a core of teachers who were themselves adequately taught in English uh, before students will be prepared to study in English at the university level. Just to give you a sense of the uh, low level of English skills within Rwanda, even in in recent years, uh, in a 2019 study of English skills among adults in 100 countries worldwide, Rwanda ranked at 95, and it was the lowest in Africa. So there are still uh, lingering problems to this day in terms of education with re- and English skills uh, in the country. That is uh, a definite gap and an interesting way in which sort of the economic sense, I suppose, at the top of the economy doesn't necessarily translate But speaking from the top to kind of the bottom of society, um, you also talk in the book about India. And in India, there's also sort of a political and educational question around English. 
Um, but I was particularly interested to pick up the part where you talk about the Dalits, which in the caste system are the lowest rung. What hope does this uh, population see in English in India? To, to what extent do you think that hope in English is actually manifesting? Just to, to give a little bit of the background of the caste system, it's existed for um, 3,000 years historically it's divided the population into four groups by occupation and social status. But the Dalits, or what are called the untouchables, and literally they are treated as if they you cannot touch them, were considered so low that they fell totally outside the caste system. Uh, and the Dalits still suffer discrimination, uh, even though the 1949 constitution made discrimination on the basis of caste a crime. For the Dalits, the way they see it, Indian languages all carry a legacy of caste. And so they see English as an egalitarian language, as, as a tool of empowerment. English is going to lift them up out of poverty. Even the poorest parents are willing to pay for their children to attend low-fee private schools where the quality of English teaching is often shamefully low and nothing like the quality of teaching in the higher end English private schools. And while it's true that the circumstances for many Dalits have improved, uh, enrollment in higher education, for example, among the group is still only 18 percent uh, as compared to 27 percent nationwide, which that in itself, nation, you know, across the country is a low level, but it's still lower than the nation nationwide level. And the government is largely to blame for failing to provide the education that's needed, whether it be in English or in Hindi, to lift the Dalits out of poverty. Interesting. Um, I think that's, I, I'm, I understand you didn't necessarily design it this way, but I think the uh, example of Rwanda and the sort of idea of top down and then India um, is really fascinating and brings a lot of uh, nuance and complication and kind of really makes you think about, hang on, what is the impact of English being such a dominant uh, language globally? So I'm really, thank you for including that and explaining it to us. I'd love then to turn towards, um, as we come towards the later end of the interview, to turn towards um, the English-speaking countries and um, particularly for now, uh, the United States. And one of the things you talk about um, is about bilingualism and how kind of uh, the U.S. being a relatively dominantly English-speaking country, but of course having lots of other languages within it, and how different parts of the country have um, thought about bilingualism, how it's been related to education. And I was really interested to read about Utah um, being one of the leaders in promoting language education at the state level. Can you tell us a bit about why that is? Quite frankly, I was very interested in learning about Utah because it was something that I did not really have a sense of. Utah has been a phenomenal success in promoting what are called dual, dual language immersion programs. Uh, these are programs where students are taught in two languages at different parts of the day. Uh, and it began back in 1979, which is quite a while ago. Uh, with a Spanish-English program in one school district. But it took another three decades for the idea to really take off. And, and what made that happen was a combination of determined allies, including the governor at the time, John Huntsman, 
uh, a state senator, Howard Stevenson, uh, a world language specialist within the education, the state education system, Greg Roberts, uh, and the support of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church. Uh, and they became, the LDS Church became a, a really significant component in this growth in language immersion programs because they train their young members to work abroad on a two-year mission. Uh, and they train those young people in whatever language, you know, com, you know, relative to the country that they'll be working in on this mission. And so uh, here you have the, the combination of politics and religion coming together and pragmatism coming together in the state of Utah. By 2021, the program had grown just to see, you know, to see how exponentially how th this program had grown. It had grown from 600 students in 35 schools to 65,000 students in 285 schools. Uh, and the program has been an economic boon for the state. Uh, it's attracted multinational corporations like eBay and Procter & Gamble uh, that are looking for workers with foreign language skills. Uh, so Utah is a, a, a really fascinating case study in itself of how religion and politics can come together uh, and shape public policy and education policy in a particular direction. Wow, that is quite significant growth um, and with some clear benefits as well beyond just learning the languages. So uh, I found that really fascinating as a reader, certainly. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, another area of the book I wanted to ask about was around um, labor outsourcing and language around that. So I was wondering if you could tell us about how we see tensions around authenticity, standardization of kind of how English is spoken and who speaks English, um, especially clearly in this area of labor outsourcing. This was, this was a question that uh, was eye-opening. Yeah, there are other aspects of the book that I found extraordinarily interesting and new and at times troubling and touching, uh, but this was really eye-opening. Um, American corporations now outsource a significant amount of business, especially to the Philippines and, uh, and India, uh, because English skills are rather high in those countries. So here we see these young workers situated in calls, what are called call centers, uh, and they directly deal with English-speaking customers uh, on a regular basis. I'm sure, you know, many Anglophones have called uh, customer support uh, and uh, tapped into, reached, connected with someone, a young person working at one of these call centers. But we don't understand that those young people undergo vigorous accent and voice retraining programs, uh, teaching them a neutral accent that is not necessarily tied to any Anglophone country or region, although it's increasingly becoming more American English. For the U.S. market, uh, they're taught to get into, quote unquote, the American psyche and to understand how Americans think. Uh, they have to change their name uh, and essentially their whole identity. So you can imagine the harm to their, their sense of self. But the politics of, of neutral English go beyond outsourcing. There's a, a whole industry in what's called accent reduction. Uh, and it's geared toward helping people speak with an unmarked or neutral, um, now more and more an American accent, for work in the global economy. <clears throat> to give you a sense 
of the magnitude of the industry. Wall Street English runs over 400 centers in 28 countries with a total enrollment of 175,000 students, mostly through a stream of franchises. And that's just one of these these companies. But the question uh, of authenticity and what is acceptable English is also hotly debated among linguists. The question is whether only standard British English or standard American English should count, or whether other varieties should be accepted on an equal plane in both education and business and and foreign affairs. And, And with Britain no longer in the European Union, this question has become hotly debated within the European Union itself. You know, will there be a distinct form of Euro-English uh, that might de- develop that would be utilized within the EU institutions and among EU member states? Uh, but that remains to be seen. Very interesting, um, both for what it currently is talking about and kind of what it suggests for potentially the future of language development as well. As we think about the idea of kind of the dominance of English, though. Um, There's downsides that we've spoken about, you've helped us understand, for countries for whom English is not their native language necessarily. But what are the downsides of English dominance for people in Anglophone countries? This is an aspect of the rise of English that Anglophones really don't understand. They just don't get it. Uh, The fact that English appears so pervasive has lulled Americans and Canadians and and Brits and New Zealanders and Australians, all these Anglophones, uh, into believing that there's no need to learn other languages, that English can just do it all. You know, you can go to any country and now you see signage in uh, airports from Tokyo to Rome to Buenos Aires uh, in English, a hotel individuals working in hotels speak English, you go into a restaurant, and it's likely, at least in large cities, that the staff is going to speak English. So there really is this false notion that other languages just don't matter. The number of students studying languages in the United States, for example, uh, is sharply declining. Uh, A century ago, 89% of colleges in the U.S. required that you had to have previously studied a language other than English, in order to be admitted. 89%, 100 years ago. By 2020, that number had dropped to 25%, 89% to 25%. Besides, only a quarter of the world is even minimally competent in English, so the idea that the world speaks English is just untrue. And that means that monolingual English speakers cannot tap into a large body of knowledge or take advantage of many business opportunities because of their lack of other languages. When you look at uh, the global economy and mass migration and diplomatic tensions, uh, they've all created a need for speakers with multiple language skills that most English speaking or Anglophones lack. Even worse, Anglophones risk the world talking over their heads while they become more and more politically and culturally isolated. Reading or or listening to world events through different language media gives you a much bigger picture than limiting yourself to English-speaking outlets. And I tell my students this again and again, particularly my students 
in my comparative equality seminar because they are students who are interested in comparative law and in, in looking at law in, in, in a, a global perspective, uh, that you, you're so limited by just accessing current events uh, in your own language or in English. Uh, it also gives you a sense of how others are processing our politics. Yet even beyond job opportunities and, and foreign affairs, even you know, beyond these more utilitarian motives or purposes for learning other languages, there's just the incredible experience of reading the great literary masters uh, in the original. Uh, I, I do appreciate uh, the art of translation, and I'm currently reading two books simultaneously on the art of translation, uh, but still, I've tried working from an original text in, in Italian or, or French, which I do read, uh, then reading the translation in English, and you really do lose something. You're, you're reading a, a really, comp- it could be a very competent translation of the original, but you're not reading the original. Uh, so there are many reasons for uh, Anglophones to be concerned uh, or to be uh, warned of this downside of English only. That makes sense. There's a quite a number of downsides there. So thank you for explaining that. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that this book took seven years to write. And hopefully in this interview, we've given something of a snapshot of the number of different things that it touches on, the debates it brings to light and puts in conversation with each other. Um, and so it's clearly something you've worked a lot on and um, have been able to kind of create these stories for us to understand, which is incredibly interesting and helpful. But the book is out now. So what are you working on now or next? The chapter in the book on the new scramble for Africa uh, led me to think more about the political implications of knowledge diplomacy, including language, as a form of soft power. And so I'm now looking at how China's use of the Chinese language and these joint education programs with Africa, where, again, the youth population is growing rapidly, uh, of how it's challenging France and Great Britain in their former colonies. While the U.S. is now making gestures, we see, toward re-engaging Africa, though not through knowledge diplomacy. So, you know, my question here is, does it really matter that, that, you know, is China entering the the hearts and minds of young Africans? Uh, And there's a a, a recent study that was published. Uh, It was a survey of young Africans that indicated that they felt more positively toward China than they did toward the United States. Uh, So to what extent is the United States or Western countries in general losing out here? Uh, with regard to China through the Belt and Road Initiative, but also not just through infrastructure. And that that a lot of the discussion talks about infrastructure and economic development, uh, but seems to bypass this notion of knowledge diplomacy. Uh, To what extent should Western countries be more mindful of those efforts on the part of China uh, and whether or not it could have any effect on democracy and the rule of law on the continent. So this project is still in a very early stage, uh, but I'm curious to see where it might lead. 
that sounds fascinating. Um, hopefully that will be another book and then we can read that as well. Um, but in the meantime, while you go off and work on that, uh, as a reminder, the book we've been primarily talking about is titled The Rise of English, Global Politics and the Power of Language, Oxford University Press in 2021. Dr. Rosemary Salomon, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda. It's been my pleasure.